And yeah, what if I tried something like this? You know, maybe fucking this. A little laid back. Maybe you want something a little heavier. Uh, well, probably not heavy, but you're now listening to. Hello, everybody. Welcome back. To the podcast. I'm going to try to keep this intro short because we have so much going on. Do you guys remember when the podcasts themselves used to be short? That was always the idea. And now they're capping out at about an hour. Do you like it? Do you not? Do you want short episodes every once in a while? Email me at dn at nomoradio.com. Let me know how you're feeling. And on that note, guys, the end of this episode, we got listener feedback out the wazoo. I don't think that's ever a phrase I've used before, but I'll tell you what, didn't mind using it. It was kind of fun right now. We got so much listener feedback on the body hair episode, episode 69 that I did with my girlfriend. So uh, we'll get into that at the end of this episode. But meanwhile, let me tell you more about Philippa. She is an individual and relationship counselor. We did an earlier episode, episode 11, way back when. You can listen to that one. That one is about relationships as well. I love talking to her as a counselor and as a buddy. She's ah, she's just great. This episode took place a couple of months ago over her breakfast table. She had just made me gluten-free pancakes and coffee because she's awesome like that. Anyway, you'll hear about all of that. I said I was going to keep it short, right? What else do you need to know? Uh, There's a very uh, special, I don't know, does it need a trigger warning maybe? Just a mini trigger warning for uh, a kind of gross content? Or is that body shaming of me? I don't know. Anyway, there's a very special learn a thing coming your way (laughs) from me and Philippa at the end of this episode. And then of course, listener feedback. I've already said that and I'm just repeating myself. Guys, I'm Deanne Smith. I'm a comedian and a fun person. Thank you for listening to the podcast. I hope you love this one. Do I get to, I get to drop it at the end? Like, funk, you can climb you out. They're not very expensive mics. Um, all right. The question is, what's up with jealousy, man? What's up with jealousy? What's Lots. up with jealousy? How can I deal with it? How can I overcome it? What's the... Dilly? We couldn't really come up with a perfect question. What's the dealio on the jealousy-yo? Yeah, no. we just want to talk about it's jealousy. Terrible. Yes. Well, we do want to talk about jealousy because everybody doesn't know what to do with it, right? Mm-hmm. That's the problem with jealousy is it takes you over. You don't want to have it. Nobody wants you to have it. And uh, it makes you feel like crap. This is a side question mm-hmm. that I've never fully understood. What's the difference between jealousy and envy? Envy is like you want something you don't have. Mm-hmm. Jealousy is like you are just being want a jerk. something you can't have. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, well, th- that's an interesting question. Uh, my partner, one of my partners, and I were actually talking about that the other day, mm-hmm. and he was trying to make that distinction. And I think there isn't really that much distinction. I think it all comes from the same place. Besides envy, I think is more about seeing something that you would like to have or be and you can't have access to it, right? So you're envious of someone who gets to go on vacation. That doesn't mean that your heart is being ripped to shreds because someone gets to go to Costa Rica and you don't. Right? Heart, so- is, <laughs> heart is being ripped to shreds. Yeah. All right, let's get in there. Let's talk about the fact we are specifically talking about jealousy within polyamorous yes. relationships yes. the poly lifestyle <laughs> the poly lifestyle are there other all words? the kids are doing it yeah. today are there it's, other words there i should know but i use that? non-monogamous just because you know i don't like to be i like to one of def- those poly weirdos well, i don't like to define myself so i choose to do the opposite of define myself i'll say what i'm not not yeah. what i am so yeah, it's okay, like yeah. so i go for the non-monogamy because lots of people are not monogamous in all kinds of ways and they don't really want to define themselves but what that means is they have partners that are external to just a primary partner. Mm-hmm. Now, it doesn't mean they're in love with that person or it doesn't mean maybe they're just having sex with that person. But non-monogamy is sort of is that is having multiple relationships okay. of various kinds. So yeah. we're talking about jealousy in that context because it works differently in monogamy. In monogamy, jealousy is used in many ways as a control. Ooh, tell me more. I'm well, super monogs, as you know. <laughs> Well, when your partner expresses jealousy over something, then the assurance is, don't worry, I'll never do that. And if the person isn't doing that in some way, maybe it's settled more easily. Unless somebody's sort of restricting uh, another person from going out with friends because they're worried about what might happen. Mm -hmm. 
But in non-monogamy... Wait, can we just take a yeah. moment there for our listeners sure. and say, that's insane. <laughs> Leave that person if that's happening to you. <laughs> no, we don't use those words here. <laughs> no, that is insane. That's no. insane. You're crazy that you'd oh, be scared. Right. Yeah, crazy. we can't use those words. Somebody wrote me recently about... Um, I did a podcast with a comedian, Steph Tolive, and she was saying a lot, crazy, it's crazy. <laughs> and they were like, you know stigma about mental illness all these things that's a whole other i'm it's not even gonna walk down the road of thought another, policing we, have, we, we don't have another word to plug in there yet but anyway well yeah I and mean, if we plug the word in it'll just mean the same thing come on it's been tried before right okay. yeah so anyway. it's not the word it's the problem it's not insane but guys if your partner is trying to tell you to not go out with your friends yeah then you should probably <laughs> unless your friends are jerks i don't know your life anyway i'd be the worst therapist ever. i was gonna say <laughs> This is not your... <laughs> All right. We're getting right. back into it. Now let's get back into it for a second. So, so jealousy in monogamous relationships is used it, as control. It can, I'm not saying it is used in control, but I think it, it acts differently because when you're using jealousy in a non-monogamous relationship, you're sort of saying to the person, I'm worried about what you might do, but you're not going to do it. When you have jealousy or the feelings that we're, we're going to call them jealousy, but I want to change the name. That's the whole point of this is changing the name from jealousy to something else okay. because it has such a bad rap, right? Jealousy has the worst rap of all the emotions. Nobody likes a jealous person. Nobody likes being jealous. And most of the literature or approaches deal with jealousy as insecurity, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, you're jealous because you are insecure that you aren't lovable or that your partner is, the relationship is not secure or that there's an actual real fear um, within the relationship that <clears throat> somehow this person's going to leave you, right? Mm -hmm. and, and that's what people sort of, talk about when they're talking about feeling jealous it's kind of complicated in non-monogamy because there's an acceptance between partners that they're going to go out and meet other people right and then oh they, yeah i am going yeah. out with my friends and i am gonna fuck other people I, and i may not just fuck people i might fall in love with somebody else and i think that's when it really really kicks in is mm -hmm. when you're in polyamorous relationships which is multiple love affairs and some your partner uh ends up falling madly in love with somebody else oh no Sorry, that's my other lover. Um, let's just put this on pause for a minute while I chat with my lover. Uh, uh, yes. <laughs> now, no. <laughs> we put it on pause, and I just asked you, in a, almost in a panicky way, like as if we couldn't just have a conversation. I was like, do you remember where you were? <laughs> yeah, I'm no, taking that. it off pause. We're doing this. All of a sudden, I completely forgot. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, to go back... Yes. Um, it becomes very difficult for people in non-monogamous relationships because intellectually, with their brains, right, they want to be able to be non-monogamous. They want to have something that we call compersion. Mm -hmm. Do you know what that is? I do, but let's illuminate it for our listeners. Okay, who probably are. <laughs> compersion is a name given to the feeling of happiness for your partner's happiness. This is the ideal Ugh, of... Ugh, gross. I, I never feel that. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> this is the point. Is in polyamorous sort of lore, everybody's supposed to feel compersive and wonderful and happy, and when your partner meets someone that they love, it's supposed to bring all this beautiful emotion in, and you're supposed to feel happy for them. Well, the problem is, is that people don't always feel that way. People often feel jealous and anxious and worried and angry and, and lacking of, of attention and time, and they don't feel compersive. And mm -hmm. then their partner is like, what the hell? Why don't you feel what you're supposed to feel? We signed a contract here. We're non-monogamous. You're not supposed to be giving me crap about your feelings because it was understood that you should be okay with this. Right. Um, so people, people get into, mon into people get into non-monogamy because they want to fuck a bunch of bitches, and then they realize <laughs> once they're in there. I'm sorry, giving her the eye. She's giving me really horrible looks. <laughs> I'm, guys, I haven't even had half a cup of coffee yet. We just got up. <laughs> just being ridiculous. But but okay, so people get in because that's that's what they want, and then they're like, whoa, there's a lot of emotions going on here. I'm not at maybe as quote cool with this as I thought I was. How do I deal? But then there's not a lot of room to move there because, hey, come on, you should be cool. Yeah. You chose this. We all chose this. Yeah. Chill yeah. out, man. You shouldn't be feeling the way you're feeling. Right. So what I sort of say, there's kind of a trajectory to that dynamic in relationships. You know, you're with your partner and they're like, they go meet someone else and they come back having met someone else. And maybe you feel some emotions, right? Some actual physical emotions. Like, oh my God, this really hurts. Wow, I, I was up all night wondering what was going on. Yeah, I'm really man. scared. It's like tossing and turning, feeling really terrible. And they express that to their partner the first time and their partner is usually very loving and compassionate and does what most people do. They want to make 
their partner feel better. So they say, oh, baby, don't worry. I love you. I know it's scary for you, but here I am. And, you know, mm-hmm. I'm going to prove to you that all your fears are not real, which might work for a day or two. What happens to the person later is that what happens if those feelings continue? It doesn't matter. The person has assured you, your partner has assured you on some level intellectually that they love you and they're there for you. But every time they go off with this other person, once again, you're consumed with this very strong, physically painful emotion. Oof, I know that feeling. Yeah, we all know that feeling. The sort of pit in your stomach, Mm -hmm. can't think of anything else, don't know what to do with it. Um, and then, so you convey that stress again to your partner, they might reassure you again, but after a couple of times, the person who is out there with the other partner starts to become defeated. They're like, Oh, I'm making this person unhappy. My love for someone else is causing unhappiness. And they make some kinds of connections. They say, Oh, they don't really believe that I love them. The first thing that they sort of make this connection. Oh, I'm like on some level, I'm failing. The partner, the partner that has the other relationship. Yeah. Well, well, let's. Why don't we call the partner who's feeling jealous, partner J? <laughs> oh, partner J. Yeah, yeah partner J. Okay, and we'll call the partner who's having the other relationship, partner A. Right, because okay. of Jennifer and Alex. <laughs> <laughs> There's people out there right now. Affair? Okay. I don't okay. know. So, <clears throat> so partner A starts to feel dysregulated, upset. There's all these sort of negative conversations they're constantly having with partner J, trying to reassure, trying to placate, trying to show them partner that they love J them. Partner J is a drag these days. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Fucking J is <laughs> a pain in the ass, right? But on top of that, I know that we talked before about sort of why people feel the way they do. Often it's because underneath, it's very hard for someone to feel as though they're failing their partner, right? Mm-hmm. When you walk home and into the house and your partner is always unhappy with you or with the world around you, after a certain time, we lose tolerance and it becomes really hard on us. We somehow take responsibility for our partner's emotions. We feel terrible that we can't make them feel better, right? Mm-hmm. Why can't I make you feel better about this? This is when the cho- when the, this is why it's different from non-monogamy. Uh, from monogamy is that in non-monogamy, the partner J mm-hmm. can't really explicitly say to their other partner, "Don't do that," right? Don't go love someone else. Don't go be with someone else. It's right. explicit in their relationship that that's what they're doing. So they're sort of stuck with these horrible emotions, and it's the bed that they made that they were going to lie in, and they mm-hmm. don't know what to do with them. As that interaction gets worse and those conversations get worse and it gets harder, often partner J will say these kinds of things like, this is too painful. I can't do this. I don't know if I'm cut out for this. And partner A might say things, well, maybe you're not really poly. Maybe you're not really monogamous. Maybe you can't do this. Or maybe there's something in, I've done everything I can to try to show you that I'm there for you and you still don't believe me. I feel Mm -hmm. totally defeated. That causes a a lot of painful tension. And, and all the literature that I've read, the people who do more than two, the, you know, there's a whole bunch of different writers on non-monogamy and polyamory, use an insecurity framework. They say, well, if you're feeling this way, what you have to do is sort of figure out your emotions. Name your emotions, figure out what's driving them, and then we can address that insecurity. And if we address that insecurity, somehow you should feel better. Mm-hmm. Now, the reason I've done this new framing is because I have experienced those emotions in my own relationships. And you're just standing there like, I'm secure as fuck. I'm pretty fucking secure. What's going on? <laughs> Often. <laughs> yeah. But in certain cases, I'm not. Yeah. And then what happens to me internally, and I think this is what a lot of people who, are, who have these feelings are like, what the hell is wrong with me? Why is love so painful for me? Why is this so hard for me to do? And then you have a second layer, a meta layer of guilt. I feel badly for feeling this way because I know it's harming my partner. I feel badly that every time they walk in the door, I'm sad or I'm scared or I'm raking them over the coals. I don't like this. Now my relationship really sucks. Now they're really going to leave me, mm-hmm. right? And that's internal dialogue. So both partners are feeling defeated in the relationship. Both- I'm feeling defeated <laughs> just imagining this scenario. Yeah, it's, 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 not, a, it's, not, it's not fun. Mm-mm. And it's highly emotional. Um, and I was thinking about why it was for me so difficult and in part, it was way, the way that my partners was, was reacting to me. I could see their increased frustration with my emotional state, and that made me feel like I was being um, <clears throat> overly needy, overly emotional, insecure, and that language of insecurity kept coming up and coming up. Mm-hmm. So I started to think about it in a sort of a strength-based way and started working with clients because many of my clients, I do lots of poly clients, come in and they have this issue and they're trying to negotiate. What do we do? What do we do? And I said, thought about it and said, well, why, why do I feel jealous? What is the jealousy? And I started to change it into not being that word. 
I started to think about it as being longing. I started to think about it as being fear. And I started thinking about, about it as translating into love. Mm-hmm. Really, the reason that I was feeling the way that I was was because I was so in love with my partner. I was so attached to them. And that is vulnerable. When you're that vulnerable with somebody, you're completely open. People experience vulnerability in different ways, mm-hmm. right? Some people experience vulnerability where they become anxious and they're continually searching for reassurance. Other people... I don't know what that's like. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and other people do the opposite. They withdraw. Yeah. You know, so often the partner... A is starting to withdraw. Their vulnerability is like, I'm going to make myself smaller. I'm going to not be around so much. And then I won't cause this pain. The person who's feeling jealous or insecure or painful and experiencing love in that way is sort of reaching all the time for their partner to secure them and say, no, it's okay. It's okay. But it doesn't work. As soon as their partner goes away, the emotions come back. Yeah. So I was thinking, and I said, well, how do we integrate the emotion? How do we make this feeling be okay? Instead of trying to get rid of it, that's the problem. If we cannot get rid of the jealous feeling, then we're stuck. There's no amount of talking that's going to get us out of it. There's no amount of hugging that's going to get us out of it. It still shows up every time. So I gave you the metaphor the other day of the tattoo, right? I started to think about love as that way. I started to think about love as being experience differently for different people in different ways. And a lot of people experience love with pain. Um, They feel sad, they feel scared, they feel longing. And the more in love they are, the more pain that comes along with it. It is actually an element of that love. Mm -hmm. And if they were to express to partner A, I miss you, I'm longing for you, I love you so much it hurts, the partner A would be able to do something with that oh, wow, that makes me feel so good. I love that you love me that much. Wow, you must really care. Look how upset you are. That makes me feel even closer to you. If you could find a way to communicate those emotions as being connecting emotions instead of disconnecting emotions, then you might not have the same patterns in your relationship that you would have where you're trying to take jealousy as a problem that you're going to erase. Right. What we want to do is actually make jealousy a connecting factor. We want to change the language about it and sort of say, oh, that's how you're wired. That's how you experience love. It must hurt. When you get a tattoo, for example, what's Mm -hmm. the difference between getting a permanent tattoo and non-permanent tattoo? It's really painful. Mm -hmm. It hurts. And you'll talk to anybody who has a tattoo. Some of them, you know, there's some masochists out there (laughs) who are like, yeah, give me more pain. But most people endure the pain and they integrate it. You enjoy it a little bit depends on where it is okay not on my ribs. does it get all tingly and then zen and then just like, okay Whoa. so that's like a mild amount of small and <laughs> try and getting your ribs tattooed and that's what like full-on full-on jealousy feels like like make it stop it won't go away why do i have to endure this so the pain itself is an important part of the process it makes something permanent mm-hmm. without that pain the tattoo is not a tattoo if you were to go get Novocaine'd up and have no pain in your tattoo, you would have a different relationship with that too, tattoo than you do them with the pain. Yeah. And I like to look at love that way. Um, we were talking about grieving, right? Yes. How the more love you had for someone who you lose, the higher the intensity of grieving. It's the same thing. You grieve because you loved, right? Yeah. I know. I'm just shaking my head. Just shaking here. your head. Because right? we basically had this conversation yesterday off mic for an hour. <laughs> now we're doing it again. Yeah. yeah. So I w- would like to integrate that into live relationships. You have pain and jealousy because you love. You are emotionally sensitive. Whatever your wiring is, and we don't have time to get into how people get wired, but whatever your wiring is, it makes you experience emotions in a very physical way. Mm -hmm. There are things that happen to you when you feel these emotions, and there's nothing, you cannot think your way out of it. Because it's physical. Because it's physical, it's it's emotional, it's the limbic system firing all kinds of adrenaline. Like you could be totally fine saying, okay, have a nice date with your your partner. And then two hours later, you're at home and you're just like biting your nails and trying to distract yourself. You said we don't have time to get into the way people are wired, but can we just get into it quickly? Like maybe it could be an hour, it's its own hour conversation, but I don't fully understand what you mean when you say that. Okay, I'll do a very quick attachment theory idea. Oh, I love this stuff. I know you do. So the attachment theory says that little babies are born and their brains are developing. And the person who cares for them helps the brain develop in a certain way. Mm -hmm. So if you are 
have the fortune, which almost nobody has, of having two wonderful or five wonderful or one wonderful caregiver who attends your needs in the right way. That mm-hmm. means not over-attending, like helicopter parenting. I mean, attending, you're crying, what's wrong, you pick them up, feed, whatever. And they're securely, they become securely attached. Generally speaking, the theory is, is those children have better emotional regulation than children who were not securely attached. So children who were abused. Because their brains are growing and they're just like, oh, my needs, I express needs and they get met and the world is a safe, comfortable, loving place. Exactly. So we have two parts of our brain that we talk about and that's the cognitive processing center, which is our thinking brain. And then we have what is often called the reptile brain or the hind brain or the limbic system. And that is the stuff that fires those immediate emotional uh, hormones at us, like mm-hmm. fight or flight, like the panic ones, the fear ones, the really intense emotions. There's no thought process that happens. Like if someone just try, almost hits you with a car, right. your heart is pounding. You're not thinking, you're just feeling. Mm-hmm. That's your limbic system sort of kicking in. So the theory is, is that children who were not well cared for, whether mm-hmm. that is abusive households or neglect or uh, some combination thereof, mm-hmm their limbic systems tend to be more reactive than people who are securely attached. What this means is you can't necessarily think your way out of emotions the way that other people can. Some, or some people can. Some people can be in an emotional state, mm-hmm. they, and then it's not so heightened. Their cognitive says, oh, I'm feeling scared because there's a spider in the room. If I take five deep breaths, I won't feel so scared anymore, and mm-hmm. I'll be fine. Then people with a limbic system would be like, oh, my God, spider, I'm going to die. <laughs> yeah. Out of, you know, <laughs> I need to run away. <laughs> so the, their, their emotional experience of the same thing is, is different, and their capacity to process it is different. Mm-hmm. So we have sort of a kind of wiring. And people know who, in, on some subconscious level what their wiring is. Mm-hmm. They know if they're reactive or scared or calm or shut down. Like people have the other wiring, which we call... Um, avoidantly attached, where they actually become almost flatlined with emotion. If emotion mm-hmm. gets too high, they actually zero it out. These are kids who maybe were not paid attention to in a certain kind of way and had to deal with their own needs, and so they learn to sort of self-manage all their own emotions. I totally do that. Yeah, if I, things yeah. get too intense, I I I didn't know what that was actually a thing, but I just call it robot mode. Yes, and I've taught people. I've like been able to at least know that much about myself yeah. and go like, oh, if it gets too intense, I'll go into robot mode. Exactly. Just give me a second. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And you sort of flatline out the emotions, you compartmentalize, and you put mm-hmm. them in a place. If you do that when you're with a partner, I guarantee you, your partner is going to be like, where the hell are you? What mm-hmm. the hell? Why are you so shut down? I can't access you this sucks i hate does not compute do not understand what you're saying so these are kind of what i'm talking about wiring Mm -hmm. and we all have our own complex wiring the bonus the theory is that we can always rewire reprogram ourselves it's not permanent we can have reprogramming through good relationships we can have reprogramming through therapy we can have reprogramming through exercise there's all kinds of ways that we can sort of manage our emotional states and change a little bit the processing that happens when we're under stress and i think the key word under here is stress yeah um do you want me to leap to another theory yes i do okay so and I don't have the reference, I wish I did, but there's a TED talk about it. But there's a really interesting idea about stress where it used to be thought that stress kills. Um, and, you know, you go to your doctor and your doctor would say, you have to stop being so stressed out or you're going to die of a heart attack. Yeah. Well, this theory says actually stress doesn't kill. Thinking stress kills, kills, right? So that's why stockbrokers and base jumpers and people who actively seek out stress and enjoy it don't have the same physiological response to someone who thinks that stress is bad for them and they have to get up and they have to talk in front of an audience or something and their heart's pounding and they don't feel good about it. They actually have a negative physiological response where they have a vasoconstriction. That means their blood vessels are constricting. it's, It's hard on the body. Someone who likes the stress, it's actually good for the body. It's like exercise. What? Yeah. This is making a lot of sense, RE, my comedy career. Exactly. So if you formulate internally that the stress feels good and is good for you, Mm -hmm. actually internally, it turns out it is. It's not going to kill you. that's great to know. Yeah, yeah, no, it's perfect for you. You're exercising every time you get up on stage. All right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You didn't know. You were running a mile. It's great. I just knew that I really loved it, but I did have a little doubt in my mind of like, is this, am I constantly putting myself under stress? Is this bad? No, it's actually very good for you. about it. No need to be worried about it. And actually what they sort of were saying in this is that thinking that you should be worried about it is going to cause the stress. So mm-hmm. I've now liberated you from that. <laughs> Thank you. You are now exercising every time like you get on stage. Two years longer now. <laughs> exactly. You won't have the diabetes. So, sorry, I need to go from there. So why this is important 
I think in the context of what we're talking about is that when someone is feeling these emotions that we call jealousy, um, they're actually under stress, right? They have mm-hmm. the same feeling as you might have right before you get on stage, right? It's an anxious feeling, cortisol, adrenaline coursing through your veins. It's a stress response. I was trying to look at ways to help people in these situations so that they come together. Because what we don't want to have happen is the person who is jealous or feeling these negative emotions, expressing them, and then the partner saying, okay, I'm going to limit my activities. I'm going to stop doing the thing that's causing you stress. Because we know that doesn't work. Mm -hmm. That's an anxiety theory, right? If you stop doing something, well, I won't be anxious anymore. The truth is, no, you'll just be more anxious the next time it shows up. Right. The way that we deal with anxiety is exposure. It's actually saying oh, you're doing something and the result won't be what I'm imagining it to be. Mm-hmm. So therefore, I will become less and less anxious over time. So I will, I will acclimatize to this stressful thing that used to scare me. So the spider's in the room. Oh, I can sit in the room for 10 minutes with a spider. I'm okay. The next day I can go in the room and touch the spider. And the last day I can go in and pick up the spider. <clears throat> and I will not be so scared of spiders anymore. It still might bother me, but I won't have this anxiety response. And then on day four, I start a new relationship with a spider. Exactly. And yeah. then your partner gets really jealous because she doesn't have eight <laughs> legs. <you know? laughs> so the, I like to apply that to non-monogamy because essentially you do have to reduce the stress response. So to exercise control on your partner is, first of all, unfair, right? Mm-hmm. To say, you're not allowed, you're making me feel. And this is the conversation that happens between these people is like, you're doing this, it's making me feel this, so stop doing it. And the other person says, no, you're feeling this because there's something wrong with it, stop feeling this way. And both people end up in a disconnected place and disenfranchised because Mm -hmm. neither one can solve the problem. So doing an exposure kind of thing, like, oh, you're feeling stressed, I'm going to do it anyways, and you're going to see over time that I'm still here for you, should over time make that stress be less. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, you do come home and you do love me. Oh, you do come home and you're happy to see me. Oh, okay. The things that I was worrying about, you leaving, are not happening. Right. The problem with this configuration is every time the person comes home, they come home to an unhappy partner, and eventually it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Right? right? Instead of the person coming home and being happy to see their partner, they're kind of like walking in the door and going, oh God, what am I going to be met with, right? I know I was out with my girlfriend all night. I know when I walk in, my, ne- my other girlfriend's going to be sobbing in the bedroom and ugh, this is not easy for me. Mm-hmm. We want to break that. So why all these pieces come together is how do we help both partners? How do we, what do both partners do in order to make this situation more bearable for everybody? Because those feelings are there. Mm-hmm. They're, they're not feelings that shouldn't be there. They're feelings that happen to be there. Mm-hmm. And if we try to get rid of them, we get stuck in that loop. So my approach is love the jealousy, okay? Every time your partner expresses especially at the beginning, this is more of a proactive thing. It's Mm kind of hard to do this later on. But every time your partner expresses this stress, this vulnerability, if you can respond in a way of translating those words into longing and love Mm -hmm. and respond to them positively, oh, baby, I love it when you're jealous. It makes me so hot. Oh, (laughs) you know, I can see how much you love me and need me. I can't wait to see you when I get home. Um, I can see how painful this is. You must really love me. You know, and, and that's how you experience pain. So it's totally okay. Feel the way you're feeling. I'm not going to get dysregulated by you being upset. Um, I'm just going to love you more for it because I know it's how you're experiencing love. Mm-hmm. If the partner A can sort of manifest some of that, they can actually take the veil of jealousy away and say it's not a criticism, right? This jealousy is not cri- criticizing me and saying I don't love you enough. This jealousy is actually something else. It's the way this person's experiencing love and they're expressing it to me. It just feels terrible. Mm-hmm. And so therefore they're expressing it in a painful way like with tears or with yelling or with criticism but underneath there there's just a sad and lonely person who loves somebody very vulnerably and they're scared that they don't they don't want to lose that person yeah on the other end what does the jealous person do for themselves right how do they manage these emotions because it's one thing to say hey express a positive framing to jealousy and everything should be okay but those feelings may still be there. Mm-hmm. And so everybody still gets defeated. So the person who is jealous has to come up with some kinds of management tools for their emotions, one that doesn't disenfranchise them from it. So let's jump backwards to the stress thing. The other interesting thing they found out about stress when they were doing this um, research was that the body produces all kinds of hormones under stress, and they're not all bad. So when you're stressed, you produce things like cortisol and adrenaline and your heart pounds and you sweat and your stomach feels crappy, but it also produces oxytocin. 
What? And oxytocin, everybody knows of. Mm-hmm. It's the it's the biochemical drug that we produce when we hug somebody, when we orgasm, when we breastfeed. You know, when we when we it's a connector. Mm-hmm. It's it's a it's something that allows us to emotionally open very easily and seek and long for connection. So the person who is feeling jealous is has all this running through their body while their partner is away. It's one of the reasons they're reaching for them so much. Hmm. To give the tool to the person say, oh, wait a minute, I feel all this stuff, but I'm also being given the antidote inside of me. I'm being given oxytocin. I'm going to reach out and connect with others at this time. Yeah. That is a way for them to manage those feelings without putting them on the other person. I just thought maybe they could get like a jealousy kitten. And then they could get a jealousy kitten. They could just love the kitten. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they could, except for, yes. Yes, we can get a jealousy kid. <laughs> but, so. some, but sometimes what you really need is a friend mm-hmm. or another partner or uh, a creative art or thing that you do that is uniquely your own that attaches you and engages you and distracts you. Mm-hmm. And if we start to frame the jealousy as a motivator for someone to go out and do interesting things, go out and connect... We can use it as a force for an improvement in that person's life. Mm-hmm. And then they can sort of mitigate the feeling as it's happening, distract themselves from it. If it's not causing a real negative interaction with their partner, when their partner comes home, their partner's like, yay, you were unhappy, but I'm so happy to see you. Let's have sex and let's cuddle or let's make dinner together. You sort of have kind of a win-win situation all around. Mm-hmm. It's kind of what the other partner is doing. Partner A yeah. is not feeling the same way because they're out being engaged and connecting with somebody else. Mm-hmm. It's the partner who's left at home alone who's really experiencing these intensities of emotions because they can't connect when they have all this love in them. Mm-hmm. All this love and longing is the word I would prefer to use in jealousy. All this longing is producing all this stress hormone chemical and we're, we're decoding it inside as insecurity, I can't do this, I'm failing, I'm not good enough, yeah. all those terrible kind of internal thoughts that we have. Instead of decoding that pain as love and then also decoding that love as an opportunity to actually engage in the world around you because you're like sort of fertile ground for connection. Mm-hmm. Like you might have some of the best conversations of your life when you're feeling jealous because you're so open in the stress so it's, it's sort of a way to help manage the person who knows. And what, what I'm talking about is acknowledging the jealousy exists, not trying to get rid of it, mm-hmm. but managing the interaction between the two people so it's connecting and not disconnecting. So it's not defeating for the person who's partner A, but it's also not up to partner J to take care of their own shit so they don't feel that way anymore. Yeah. It's an awesome idea. I know. I, I hope it works. <laughs> I feel like the jealousy kitten is also an awesome idea, I think though. the jealousy kitten is an awesome idea. I'm probably just saying that because your kitten's running around. I know. My kitten is definitely I've a jealousy definitely, kitten. I proposed marriage to your kitten last night. Did he say yes? Well, he purred. <laughs> he purred. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, cuddling. Uh, now you have to be non-monogamous. Um, I guess so. Oh, damn it. Um, it's funny, though, because as, as you were talking about all this, I was thinking, um, it makes perfect sense. It's great. It sounds so... Painful and difficult, though, that I was just like, oh, man. It was, like, really reaffirming for me that I don't want to do that work in this lifetime. <laughs> I got other stuff. My feeling is you're doing the work anyways. Yeah. Love is actually painful. It really is. There are times when it doesn't feel that way, and there are times that it... And it's not about monogamy or non-monogamy. Yeah. I was t- talking to you about what it, what it... For example, you. Okay, yeah, yeah. Where do you... You're off. You're traveling all the time. So it's possible that your partner will have a jealousy relationship with your work. Yeah, I think that's right? happening. So they be, they'll be like, ah, oh, I hate that you're always working all the time. You're never here. I miss you. You like your work more than me. You know, that's your priority. You know, your girlfriend is the stage. It's not me. Like, <laughs> your girlfriend <laughs> is the stage. Yeah. And I'm pounding that thing multiple times a Absolutely, week. Absolutely. Exactly. You're up there, you know, sweating and talking and stuff. So... I don't. I think it's applicable in other kinds of situations. Yeah. The whole point of it is to sort of recognize, and that's sort of my own uh, philosophy of therapy, is not trying to erase emotions, trying to walk into them and understand that experiencing emotions that are physiological, physiologically painful, mm-hmm. not pleasant, is not necessarily something that is bad for you. It's not necessarily something that is indicating to you that the world is going to come to an end and that this is so excruciating. In some ways, you can access that 
stress and say, what am I going to do with that stress? I forgive myself and understand that my brain is wired, that when my partner is far away Mm -hmm. and I get nervous, I get scared, I get, you know, longing. What do I do with all those feelings without sort of taking my anxiety ball and throwing it at my partner and saying, you take care of this. You're supposed to do stuff to make me not feel this way. Yeah. At which point that partner inevitably drops the ball, right? Mm. Doesn't know what to do because there's nothing they can actually do. Those feelings are going to exist regardless. They would exist if their partner was traveling too much. They would exist if the partner was like going through a depression and not Mm -hmm. available. Any kind of distance will evoke in many people this feeling of pain and anxiety and distance from their partner. These are radical notions. So you're saying... (laughs) Radical. Let's not run away from the... Radical self-love notions. Let's not run away from the pain and anxiety. Yeah, let's run right into it, right? Let's let's integrate it. Let's sort of understand it. Let's experience it. Just like in the tattoo, you decide that you're going to experience the pain because it's part of the process. Mm -hmm. Now... Some people it will be listening and being like, screw you, it's way too painful. Why would I want to do that to myself? And my answer is like, yeah, maybe for you, your wiring makes it too unbearable and you, and you cannot manage it, right? Oh, so you can live in this corner with your kitten. Good luck to you. Exactly. You can, you can and, and if, if a, a very closed down monogamous relationship is something that somehow makes you feel more secure and that's good with your partner, I don't, I, I don't make a judgment on that. But I do think it takes... It takes time. It's experiential. It's not going to work right away. It's really shifting everything society has ever taught us. Mm-hmm. Um, I was teaching a class. Um, I was teaching a class uh, at McGill. <laughs> Sorry. Can we just, talk about <laughs> just happened? You're talking to hear about all this radical self-love and you're putting forth these great ideas and you basically just kicked your dog in I the face. I didn't kick my dog in the face. He's licking something that he shouldn't be licking, so I moved his head away from his You, you gently his moved spot. his head I away did, with, your with my foot. Yes. Slippered foot. But it was Aww. pretty funny that in the middle Aww. of all this, you're like, excuse me. <laughs> <laughs> it's for his own good. No, it is for his own good. Pain is okay. Okay. Um, Oh, now I lost track. Oh, yeah. So I was teaching this class um, and I was teaching a class on, you know, non-monogamy. What does it feel like? What are the emotions that are attached to, to non-monogamy? Mm-hmm. And the, I asked the class, how many of you people think that um, jealousy is bad in a relationship? Everybody. The entire class raised their hand. Yeah. And then I asked, how many of you have experienced your partner expressing jealousy and it felt good? Right? You got a little twinge of, woohoo, I'm kind of happy. They must love me. And the whole class raised their hand. Right? So the experience is not always negative. People like that their partners are a little bit jealous. They know on some subconscious level that that is a sign of attachment and love. Mm -hmm. But then what happens is the interactional pattern when those emotions are too high make for a very uncomfortable relationship. It makes for a relationship filled with crying and yelling and. <clears throat> recriminations and all these things that are, are really unhealthy. Mm-hmm. So the object of this reframing is to say, wait a minute, we want to integrate those emotions. We want to look at jealousy as good. We want to look at, I mean, good, like as something that it comes along with as part of the package of love. It's mm-hmm. not a package of insecurity. It's a package of vulnerability. Yeah. It's a package of longing. So I prefer to start changing those words to vulnerability and longing than insecurity and jealousy. They are essentially the same thing. They feel the same way. When you miss your kid at summer camp, you have the same feeling that you have when you're missing your partner. You have an ache. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a physical, oh, I want this person back in my life. But you have such a secured permanence with your kid that you're able to sort of look I at bet those they're kids. out there finding another mom. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So how can we sort of learn to regulate those things within our personal intimate relationships? I think society's language of jealousy really puts the onus on the jealous person. It really says, stop feeling that way. Mm-hmm. And I kind of want to switch that because I think it's um, disenfranchising to emotions. Yeah. And when someone is allowed to be in their emotions and you can watch some Brené Brown or, you know, there's some really great people who talk about empathy. Mm -hmm. Empathy is not about changing the person's emotional state. Empathy is about going down to where that person is, recognizing it, relating and comforting and saying, it's okay that you feel that way. Or I felt that way before too. I understand this is just a feeling Mm -hmm. and it's okay for you to have these feelings. That's what you're all about. I am. How many times have I cried on your couch? (laughs) Exactly. And how have you survived? Yep. Yeah. You always survive your feelings. (laughs) Yeah. Your relationship doesn't survive your feelings when it becomes 
this sort of ultimatum space. Mm-hmm. You're making me feel this way. So what I'm sort of proposing is both the jealous person, the non-jealous person take ownership of their own feelings in a certain way. The, the partner A needs to take ownership of their feelings of failure and say, wait a minute, I'm not failing because my partner is feeling this way, right? Right. It's not up to me to make them stop feeling this way. It's up to me to love them for feeling me this way, feeling towards me this way. <laughs> for feeling me up this way. For feeling me up this way, exactly. <laughs> I don't have a magic wand. It's not as though you can instantly change those patterns and those trainings that we have in society that, you know, when your partner is sad, that somehow it's up to you to make them feel better. Mm -hmm. The whole language of love is, you make me happy. This is like the idealized love. When I'm with you, it's, you make me happy. Right? So that's the responsibility. You complete me. You complete me, exactly. And they're beautiful sentiments, you know? I express them in my relationships all the time i have people express them to me they're beautiful but they're dangerous on some level because Mm -hmm. ultimately they don't make you happy you can be happy next to you can be connected to happiness but when you're not happy does that then mean your partner is failing you yeah what if i don't make you happy anymore does that mean this relationship is a bad relationship so we have to change and break that responsibility we have to say oh i'm okay with you not being unhappy right now and I'm not going to take that on my shoulders. This is incredibly hard to do. Mm-hmm. It's not something you can just, oh, yeah, that's a great idea. I'll just do that. It, it, it's experiential. You have to experience comforting your partner in that way and seeing how it works yeah. multiple times before it actually works. You have to keep going back to it. Oh, and not being burnt out by it. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay, I see it. But you have to not take it on yourself. And that is the hardest work for the person who is partner A. Mm-hmm partner Jay's responsibility is to take ownership of those emotions as being legitimate, but not necessarily decoding them as being the responsibility of the other person. Yeah. I feel really jealous because I'm an emotional person. For me, love is very vulnerable. It's very risky. And I gave this risk and now I'm feeling it. I'm feeling longing. I'm feeling at risk and vulnerable. What can I do for myself that will deal with this vulnerability? oh, I will go attach to someone else or a place or a thing or something that engages me and then I will express these feelings to my partner in a certain way. If you express to your partner those feelings of jealousy in a different kind of way, wow, I feel like a burning in my chest because I love you so much when you're gone, I don't know what to do with that, feels a lot different than you're hurting me. Very different expression. I miss you so much, I can't sleep, is different than I tossed and turned all night because you weren't there. Yeah. Right? There's, there's different ways of expressing and integrating those emotions. That doesn't make they, mean they feel better. They, it just allows you to feel them. You, don't, you get rid of that meta thing. I feel guilty for feeling bad. I feel Oof, bad for yeah. feeling bad. That's a bad loop. The bad, that's the worst loop because you feel bad for feeling bad, so you feel worse, then you feel bad for feeling worse, and then you get stuck in that. Mm-hmm. And you cannot get out of that loop. The same thing goes for partner A. They feel bad for hurting you. And then Mm -hmm. they feel, you know, bad for their actions. They they feel bad for feeling good somewhere else. Right. This is a conflict inside. And then they come home and then they're just feeling bad. Everyone's just feeling bad. And then everybody's just feeling bad and everybody's unhappy and and sort of fighting over the emotional landscape. Mm -hmm. So the theory that I'm putting forward is let's walk into the emotional landscape differently. Let's celebrate it in some ways. It's a little pie in the sky, I admit, right? But you have to do something. Mm-hmm. Those emotions are there. What are we going to do with them? How are we going to share them instead of retract them and have them explode or exercise control and sort of say, hey, it's up to you to make me feel this way um, and sort of act in that kind of ownership sort of dynamic. It's much more connecting for people to just admit that they are vulnerable emotional people and sometimes they feel this way Mm -hmm. and if the response on the partner is i love that you feel that way i'm not going to be as dysregulated by your tears as i would have been if i'm taking responsibility that i'm doing something to you i'm just empathetic to you you might find that over time the emotional response becomes less especially if partner a is actually being a connected partner with you Mm-hmm. All this goes out the window if partner A meets somebody and for, you know doesn't pay attention, doesn't bring any energy back into the relationship, you know is constantly having fun elsewhere and coming home and kind of being in 
a dick at home, <laughs> you know, or it's sort of like, oh, it's so complacent here. I'm going to have all my sex here and no sex here. Like there has to be action of integration. There has to be a good secured relationship in non-monogamy between the partners. Mm-hmm. There has to be a real relationship there. And that has to be nurtured. So that's important. It's not just about the words. It's about yeah, the yeah. actions, right? And about the, the intentions and the energy put in. That's the other part of the puzzle. Okay, well, we've solved jealousy. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> this is what I was saying to you. And I, I mean, I'll put this on to your, your listeners. Um, try it if it sounds interesting to you and report back what the failings were or whether it was good because I'm really sort of fleshing this out with people and trying it because it is a very different way of dealing with jealousy. I, don't, mm-hmm. I haven't come across it before. And so I've been using it and people sort of key into it intellectually and then they do do it and I have done it in my relationships and it does make me feel better that yeah. I'm allowed to be this sort of like emotional person without risk because it's all about risk. My emotions are too risky. If I express them and I have them too much, you're going to leave me because my emotions are too risky. Right. If we take that element of risk out, we become more secure. I love it. <laughs> it sounds great. Yeah, it sounds great. I'm just sitting here like a uh, jealousy kitten trying to have one little sarcastic <laughs> thing to say. I can't even do it. Well, how um, do you experience jealousy? Well, I wish we could talk about it, but... <laughs> We're already out of time. We actually are out of time because wow. we both have places to go today. Yeah. Um, I have people's problems to fix. <laughs> but straight up, I mean, I could talk about jealousy in the past. I haven't, I haven't experienced jealousy at all in the last year because I'm in yeah. a new relationship and yeah. we're quite emotionally connected and very yeah. much about processing our feelings. There's no, there's been no jealousy. Yeah. Now that I'm at the end of my coffee, I'm yeah, feeling no. much more awake and, and ready, but we're going to be late to our respective things. Oh yeah. Okay. Yikes. I gotta go put some clothes on. Yeah. Put some clothes on <laughs> and then think about what you're going to say to us for learn a thing. I forgot to tell you about that. I don't know what's learn a well, thing. Well, you'll find out. <laughs> Thanks, Philippa. You're welcome to you. Summer, fall, winter, spring. It's always good to learn a thing. Summer, fall, winter, spring. It's always good to learn a thing. Summer, fall, winter, spring. It's always good to learn a thing. Summer, fall, winter, spring. It's always good to learn a thing. Okay, what are you going to teach us? Okay, I'm going to teach you something I learned last night. <laughs> yeah. Because me, it was so fun to learn. I, thought, I want to tell everybody this as well. You're getting ready for work and you're like literally putting on your pants and your underwear and I'm explaining to you what learn a thing is. I'm like, we just tell somebody, tell us all something you learned recently, whatever. It could be anything. And you said, oh, I know. Milk a prostate. All right. We did, you and I both learned about this last we, night. We both learned about milking a prostate because my partner was like, you know, like when you milk a prostate. Yeah, and I was like, no, me. no, I don't know how you milk a prostate. Come on, you know about milking a prostate. <laughs> and my response was, first of all, I'm vegan. So <laughs> why would I? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> no, because he really looked at us like this like, is a... Come you, on. Come on. Everybody knows this, right? You guys are open-minded people in the world, right? So it turns out milking a prostate is a practice that is often... And I won't say it's only gay men that do this, but it's a process by which you um, stimulate the, pr- the prostate gland so that you fill it up with, as far as I understand, seminal fluid and ejaculate. And you're able to essentially milk a penis without an, an erection or an orgasm by sort of sticking your finger on the prostate as you're saying this i'm like we should have tri- given a trigger warning for most of my <laughs> lesbian listeners but okay yes. Well, well yes well les- the, the lesbian winners don't have a prostate it's true, so they're... it's not going to be a huge trigger for them in my mind i just have one listener that's always like oh, oh come on i'm milking prostate but it's a sexual practice that is very pleasurable for men in a way that they can actually receive or achieve an orgasm that is different than your sort of Run of the mill, <laughs> like, <laughs> right, erection so and ejaculate. Stick a finger up there. You stick, stick a it. finger up there. There's a certain kind of way, and unfortunately, I, I, maybe we should redo this. I should actually look up the technique. No, I don't, don't know the actual don't, technique. Don't. But you basically stimulate the prostate so it fills and fills and fills, and then you're able to essentially, like with a cow, <laughs> milk it, milk it, and then it's very pleasurable for the person on the receiving end. My understanding is, you know, in uh, femdom, which is a kind of kind of practice where you know men are feminized, being feminized in a certain way, that this is one of the practices, uh, sexual practices that they 
that they perform. So milking a prostate. I thought femdom was just a beautiful kingdom full of hot <laughs> ladies. No, it's a beautiful kingdom filled with men that want to be treated like hot ladies. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's cool too. That's cool too, actually. All right. So we don't know exactly how to milk a prostate, but we've at least learned that milking a prostate is a thing. So if you didn't know that before today, guys, now you know, and I'm sorry. <laughs> Thank you, Philpa. Oh, you're welcome. <laughs> All right. That was that was it. <laughs> I hope you guys liked it. And now we're getting into listener feedback. I still don't have a jingle for this. I think I'm going to get Mike Kurtz on top of it. Man, he's so good at music. But meanwhile, I'll just make one up. Yeah. A listener feedback. A listener feedback. <laughs> Did you like that? Okay, friends, I'm going to try to get to all of this, but so many of you wrote in. Here is a tip from Alice. Are you guys ready for this? And all of this feedback is coming from episode 69, in which my girlfriend and I discussed body hair. So here we go. This is from Alice. This probably won't work for everyone since everybody's body is different. But what I do instead of deodorant is I dab on a little bit of vinegar under my arms after I shower and then just let it evaporate. Other than that, I use nothing at all. It took a couple of weeks for my body to adjust, but it's been a few years now and I haven't been shunned or anything, so I think it works. Smiley face. Well, Alice, I don't know. You haven't been shunned, but are people hanging out with you in your vinegar smelling pits? What are you, making pickles under there? No, Alice, I do, I do appreciate this. This is a great tip. Hannah and I had specifically asked if you guys knew any natural deodorants that worked. I'll tell you what freaks me out about this one, though, Alice. The couple of weeks for your body to adjust. What are you doing meanwhile? Just stinking? <sighs> I guess we all got to do it, though, guys, right? We want to avoid aluminum. We want to avoid cancer. If it takes vinegar and pickling some stuff under your arms, why wouldn't you? D- does pickle Pickles are vinegar, right? I don't even know. I'm just going with this. Anyway, thank you, Alice. Thank you very much. And I'm just going to read these in the order that I have saved them into this document, which really is arbitrary and doesn't mean anything. But we're going to jump back and forth to various kinds of listener feedback. Here is Lauren. This is what Lauren said. Just wanted to let you know that your podcast is always appreciated by at least this one person. I'm so glad you're still making it whatever the frequency. Anything is good. Man, thanks, Lauren. That is exactly the kind of positive reinforcement that this kid needs. Oh, guys, Lauren is 16. She says she's been listening for two years, and she calls that a solid eighth of her life. I like your math skills, Lauren, and I like the fact, look at you, you've been listening since you were 14. I never think about 14-year-old listeners. Are you guys out there? Are things good? Hey, everybody, stay in school. Lauren signed off. Everything's Raymond, which I do appreciate. Oh, guys, here is a great one from Rebecca. I'm going to read the whole thing because I think you guys are as interested in what other people are doing as I am, right? I always ask how you listen to the podcast. Lauren, for example, said that she listens while she's walking or biking places. That's cool, Lauren. This Let me just take this moment to tell you, walking, great. Biking, a little dangerous. Just if you're going to have to listen while you're biking, wear a helmet and only listen in one ear, all right? Keep your other ear on the road, yeah? Lauren, don't want anything to happen to you. <laughs> now that I'm aware that I have young listeners, I feel like I need to give them life advice. Okay, guys, here's Rebecca. I'm going to skip ahead a little bit in her email. You ask us to let you know what we're doing as we're listening. And right now, I'm packing up my room, ready to move out of my house tomorrow. Oh my gosh, Rebecca, you're already on the road. This has already happened for you. The reason I'm moving out is because I'm about to head off on a round-the-world trip for seven months. I've wanted to take a journey like this for many years. And after setting up my own business and working for myself for a while... I finally managed to save enough cash to be able to go. I'm super excited, but at the same time, pretty nervous and sad to know that I won't see any of my friends or family again until Christmas time, which seems like a long way off now. The hardest part is that I have a partner who I've been with for three years who I'll have to say goodbye to tomorrow morning. Oh my gosh, you guys, this has all already happened. Rebecca, how are you doing? You're on the other side of this now. I should have written you back on this day. I just kind of saved it for this. Anyway, are you listening? Are you on your travels? Wow. Okay. So here we go. I love him very much, but I know I have to have this adventure while I still have the chance or else I'll feel stuck and regret not having been brave enough to do something I've dreamed of for so long. Things weren't great between us when I made the decision to go, but as soon as I told him and booked my flights, we started getting on better and have become even closer. I think because we no longer have the pressure of trying to figure out our future together. Makes a lot of sense, Rebecca. We've agreed that while we're apart, we should feel free to date other people and that we'll just wait and see how we both feel about things when I return. I'm bisexual and I haven't dated many girls, but I've had a number of long relationships with men. I feel like part of my journey will be about exploring my queer identity. 
Oh man, Rebecca, it's going to be the best. Listening to your podcast is one of the things that has made me feel connected to queer culture and queer perspectives while in a relationship that most people around me seem to read as, quote, straight. So thank you so, so much for being there. Aw, Rebecca, this is amazing. Thank you for being there. Why don't you keep us updated on your queer adventures? And I mean that in the least pervy way possible. If you want me to mean that in a pervy way, I can too. Send me private pictures of your queer adventures, Rebecca. Um, I have 14 year old listeners, guys, I'm just joking, but Rebecca, why don't you, why don't you keep up, keep us posted on your travels? Check in every once in a while. Let us know how things are going. You must be settled in on the road a bit as much as one can settle while one is traveling, but here you are, you're on the other side of it. Wow. You wrote this email at a very interesting time. Thank you so much. Here's Christina. She is responding to the quote homework that Hannah gave you in episode 69. She said, I can't remember all the homework But no, quote, natural deodorants work. But if you're so inclined, I reckon soap and water three times a day would keep the pong at bay. (laughs) But not if your clothes are washed infrequently once the pong is in the shirt. Hmm, pong. Very interesting, Christina. I'm imagining a hairy back dyed and conditioned to soft purple fuzz. (laughs) If you've listened to the episode, that makes sense to you. If you haven't, uh, you're just wondering why Christina is giving me a stream of consciousness interpretation of the thing she's imagining. I once washed my hair with raw egg and vinegar for a few months. Worked fine until I met my wife, who politely said the egg smell was not okay. What if you, what if though, Christina, what if you're washing your hair with egg and you're using vinegar under your armpits and you got kind of like a pickling egg thing happening? (laughs) That could be, no, it's really gross. Christina also says, I don't like hair. I don't like it anywhere really, except on my children. Their hair is soft and smells good. I don't like the look of shaved pubis slash bum. Really, I can't believe I just said pubis slash bum, but that's what she wrote. And I also don't like the utter mess that is menses with much hair. Guys, I apologize for not reading through these before I'm reading them to you. <sighs> so I shave everything off maybe once every three months. Hair on legs never bother. Hair on legs never bother shave. That's how she wrote that. Christina, I like it. You don't give a fuck about grammar or how sentences should be structured. Or what perhaps the phrase utter mess that is menses with much hair would would call up in all of our minds. Armpit hair in summer, but only for small reduction purposes. I don't know what this means, guys. Christina's losing it at the end of this. Here's a question that she has for Hannah. She said she hasn't bought lipstick in 21 years. Shall I just stick to powder and eyeliner? It kind of feels like I should have brought it along for the ride if I wanted to use it now. Also, it tastes funny. You know what, Christina? I'm going to answer this question for you. Yes, lipstick. Make it happen. Why not? Try it out. Get one without a taste if you can. Is that even possible? I don't know. I don't wear lipstick. Get a natural one. Go to the body shop or what have you, whatever you have. Get a natural one. Try it out. Why shouldn't you? Live on the edge. It's been 21 years. Try something new. Get out there. What's the worst that can happen? You put on some lipstick, you feel like a clown. And that's not even a bad thing. Clowns are amazing. Hey, and a quick shout out to Dale. I don't need this need to read this message to all of you because it is confidential between me and Dale. But hey, Dale. Hi. Thank you for writing. Guys, here's B. B says she loves the podcast. Thanks, B. Some days I listen to it while I walk around the dog park and try not to laugh out loud and draw more attention to my petless self. Oh, B, you are cool. You just walk around the dog park and hang out and listen to podcasts. You know what you should get? Do you know what I had when I was young? When I was about 11, it was the, oh, I loved it so much. It was one of those invisible dog leashes. I haven't seen these in years and years and years, so I don't know if you guys can even imagine this, but it is a fake dog leash that has a wire in it and a muzzle at the end. So the dog leash looks like it's being pulled and you can set up the wire so that it's like your dog is quite strong and pulling the leash or you could put a little loop in it like you and your invisible dog are just strolling around Oh, it's the best. So it looks like you're walking an invisible dog. When I was 11, it was the greatest thing in the world. I loved it so much. My favorite thing to do with it, of course, was to walk my dog around and then kind of like turn the leash sideways and act like my invisible dog was peeing on stuff. Anyway, B, you should get one of those at the dog park. Why not? I say call more attention to your petless self. Let them wonder what you're all about. She also says she plays it to help fall asleep. Oh my gosh, I should tone down the energy. She also says, no, that was too sultry. What would be a good soothing sleep tone? I don't know, guys. I'm a bit of an insomniac. Other time, I can't do that. I can't do it. I can't tone down the energy. But anyway, she plays it to help fall asleep. 
And then she says she usually ends up replaying half again the next morning. Good call, B. Can't miss a thing. Can't miss a thing in this podcast. Because look, if you've listened this long and now you're hearing about your own self. Oh, and B sent me a picture uh, with t- of a tiny pineapple, which is a reference to a very little web series that I did with my friends Carly and Robin. We had a little show called, it was a show. Show is very generous. We did a couple of few minutes things that we popped up on YouTube called The Adventures of Tiny Pineapple. So B sent me a picture of Tiny Pineapple. Thank you, B. And I will be posting that on the Quest at Best Twitter site. Twitter site? Twitter handle? Twitter account. That's what it's called. Guys, do you follow Quest at Best on Twitter? You should. Guess what I'm doing? I'm following all of you back. And then sometimes I scroll through and see what you all are up to. Pretty great, huh? I think I can do that. I think I can do that easily for the first 200 listeners. And then after that, ugh, we're too famous. We don't have time to follow everybody. Guys, follow it. Quest at Best. We have some fun over there. Guys, here is a long email from Azu. Azu. A-Z-U. I'm not sure how to pronounce that. I'm just going to read the whole thing. Just for the record, I have a gazillion drafts that I was supposed to send you, and for some reason I didn't. Actually, I just have one or two. I was listening to the podcast last night and about short hair, and I have many feelings. In fact, I wrote about it somewhere, so I'll just paste it here. Let me see. Let me tell you, I was a kid, a very happy kid. I grew up with five brothers and just one sister who's way older than me, and I have a non-identical twin. Gosh, that's a ton of kids. So as a kid, I had a lot of fun. And did things girls weren't supposed to do because, you know, patriarchy. Anyway, I remember really funny episodes of my life that are for sure important now that I'm grown up and I have the chance to make decisions on my own. One thing I remember is when my dad used to cut my hair right after doing the same with my brothers. I can see my little self running to the chair and asking for my haircut because it was so fun. And the best part of it is that my dad never refused to do it. I had an awesome childhood. But things change. It gets cloudy sometimes. And I became a teenager. Not the classical one, though. I didn't get in trouble like ever. I was a good student, and that was fine to my parents. But I became more and more insecure. I became even more shy. And it was difficult, but I always knew that one day I would be different. I really did. I used to think, God, please, I know there's something inside me. I know I'm different. I know I have a mission here. I know, but give me a sign. So after a really long time, he decided to let me know that I was gay. (laughs) That is adorable. So at the end, I was right. I was different, but that's another story. Just a couple of months ago, I moved to a new city where I live alone and I got a job where I finally get to dress the way I prefer, which is wonderful. So I started wearing the shirts I wasn't able to wear at my last job, but some of them were still women's shirts and I don't have anything against them, but I don't feel as comfortable as when I'm wearing men's shirts. Oh, I feel ya, Azu. So last month, I went to find me a couple of shirts as it was meant to be. I came back with six shirts. That was a productive day. (laughs) All right. They're just talking a bunch about shirts here. So I might just skip this part for you guys. But this is great. Here we go. I finally get the chance to be myself, at least in the I can wear a men's shirt if I want way. And I got to say, I do look handsome while wearing them. I bet you do, bud. It brings the confused looks of women in the bathroom. Yep. And sometimes like yesterday, guys would say, hi, bro. (laughs) And then hear my voice and apologize because they thought I was a man or a little boy. Yes, that happens too. But I get to feel free and happy, proud and really confident. That is freaking fantastic, my friend. Oh, and about the no poo movement or whatever. I read about it some months ago. And yes, I tried. And it's so terrible. Well, not that terrible. Actually, my hair was doing great. And I was able to style it. But there's a downside. The smell. I couldn't stand it. And I don't know if other people could notice. But I was so uncomfortable with it that I quit. And that's my experience with it. Okay, this is our first reference to no poo. So I need to tell you that what that means is no shampoo. We talked about that in the hair episode. Azu also put a parenthetical reference saying in Spanish we have verb peinar, which is like the action of brushing it and doing your hair, I guess. Guys, this is all in Azu's not even first language. Good job, you. Oh, they said, I, I live with the hope of getting to meet you in person one day, going to one of your shows, and I think it will happen. I think it will happen too. Just find me somewhere. Maybe I'll come to your town. Here's Brooke. I was totally a no shampoo gal for years, but you think it must made me a weird greasy punk. My ex thought it was the best plan. We used loofahs instead of soap too. Yeah, kind of grody. Oh my gosh, I haven't heard the term grody in 25 years. I love it. Love makes you do weird things sometimes. I still probably only wash my hair once a month or so, but I definitely use shampoo. Thanks for the update. Here's Nikki. I really enjoyed your podcast about body hair. I used to be super freaked out by it as I went to an all-girls school and it would have been a criminal offense to have hairy legs. However, since graduating from higher education, I've been trying really hard to come to love my leg hair. I'm quite feminine in dress and face. 
Apparently, I have, quote, small feminine features. I know, me too, Nikki. And I was really conscious of how I look wearing a dress with hairy legs. You didn't fully go into that in your last podcast. So I was wondering what your thoughts are on hairy legs on femmes. I'll tell you what, Nikki, I love it. I love it. I love anything that's kind of counter culture and counter the norm. And I feel like the confidence of hairy legs on femmes, ugh, love it, love it, love it. Thank you, Nikki. Here's Hollis. Hollis sent a picture of the deodorant that they use. So that's on the Quest at Best Twitter. Check that out. Hollis says, no aluminum, and I Girl Scout promise that I'm not paid to promote it in any manner. Fair warning. If I use too much of it, my armpits can sometimes get pink and irritated. But based on internet reviews, this doesn't happen to most people. It also comes in a regular twist-up. Good luck on your quest. Hollis had to mention that it came in a regular twist-up because the picture that Hollis sent is like this like paste that you have to scoop with your fingers. Ooh, how deeply do you want to get into natu- natural deodorant? Here's Lauren telling Safi and I what tubs is because we didn't know there was a reference in the last podcast episode 70 i'm so glad that the reference you guys didn't understand was about tubs because oh man what an explanation (laughs) there's an app called nico atsumi i think that's how you pronounce that and it's been explained as a sort of cat garden it's basically a backyard setting where you put out food and toys to attract different cats tubs is one of those cats the fat one who lays down and eats all the food you put out There's a startling amount of controversy about him. There are tumblers devoted to how people feel about him. Some people love Tubbs, others hate him, but the bottom line is that he's a cartoon cat from an app. At least that's the only Tubbs I know of and the only one that I can think someone would reference on Twitter. That's all. Keep talking into a microphone and sending it to my ears. Hey, thanks for the encouragement, Lauren. Here we are. And thanks for letting us know what Tubbs is. Oh, guys, we've reached our final email of listener feedback for this episode. I will tell you, I also got an unsolicited email uh, asking for advice because Safi and I did advice in the last podcast. Did you guys like the advice one? Do you want more cheeky kind of bad advice? (laughs) Because somebody wrote in, I'm not going to read this one, but if we do another advice, we'll we'll read it then. Should we do more advice? I don't know. Email me, deannenomoreradio.com. I'll get some fun friend on and we will give you very questionable advice. Our final email of listener feedback for this episode is Ken. Here's Ken. Ken says, you mentioned that you were unable to find a natural deodorant that really works. And I use one, but there's a little snag. I've been using a deodorant salt crystal for about 15 years now. And believe me, I get pretty stinky without it. I do believe you, Ken. The way salt crystals work is they dry out the bacteria that make your armpits smell. But there is a trick. They don't work if you have armpit hair because hair has a massive surface area for the bacteria to grow on. So that makes the salt crystal ineffective because you can't coat every hair in salt. Thanks, Ken. The second trick is that you have to let it dry before getting dressed. So what I do is right after my shower, picture it, everybody. Picture Ken in the shower. Picture it. I wet the salt crystal and apply it. Then I floss and brush my teeth and that's enough time for the salt to dry and I can get dressed and I'm good for the day. Also, having tried every brand, Leif's brand natural deodorant is by far the best I have found. But if you love armpit hair, this isn't going to work for you. But I just thought I'd share my experiences in case they are helpful. Thanks, Ken. Guys, that's it for listener feedback. Should we uh, get into the outro? Why wouldn't we? Let's let's, uh, seamlessly move into the outro. Thank you so much for listening. You guys, if you enjoy the podcast, why don't you subscribe on iTunes if you're not already? Why don't you tell friends about it? Why don't you give it a five-star rating? That's the only one I will accept. Why don't you write up a little review for it? That would be great. All our reviews are a few years old at this point. Let's get let's get this thing going. Let's crank it. And let's thank everybody that makes this possible. You guys. Me. I never thank myself. You know what? Yeah, I do make this very possible. Mike Carozza. Patrick World. Charlie Sneaker. Paul Flalo and technology in general. It makes it all very possible for us. Thank you guys so much for listening. I'm Deanne Smith. I'm coming to Portland, Seattle, Vancouver, and other places. I'm in Ottawa right now. Come see me. All right. See ya. Bye. Raymond, Raymond's everyone you meet.